Hello, this is Derek Duncan. Thank you for downloading or streaming episode 63 of the Feed the Ball podcast. My guest for this episode is Brian Schneider. One of the most significant transformations in golf architecture in the last 25 years has been the decentralization of the design and construction process. Throughout most of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, golf design, at least at the highest levels, was mostly carried out in a corporate format with large structured design firms handing off comprehensive design plans to equally large regional contractors, each working for developers and investors most frequently in conjunction with housing developments and resorts. The recession of 2009 obliterated that model by forcing these design firms to downsize, thereby jettisoning associates out into the ether like debris from an exploding planet. The result was a massive reorientation of the business, which now resembles a constellation of mobile independent actors. In some corners, things were changing well before. Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw had already moved the design element away from the office and into the field, while turning over detail and finish work to their own shapers. Tom Doak's Renaissance design operated in the same manner, first with people like Gil Hans and Mike DeVries, then with Bruce Hebner and Jim Urbina. Doak and his associates created almost improvisationally off the land, and Doak allowed, in fact demanded, that those around him be active participants in the architectural process. It was Renaissance, in fact, who really perfected the design-build team concept, that is, finding the livable balance between intensive on-site immersion and a healthy schedule rotation, with the composition of the current lineup of Don Plasek, Brian Slonick, Eric Iverson, and Brian Schneider, who joined Doak in 2002. Before coming on board, Schneider worked on ground crews at some of America's most notable clubs, including Augusta National, Pine Valley, Riviera, and Marion. You might think exposure to these levels of maintenance would leave a deep impression on him, and it did, but perhaps not in the way you might expect. This is something we do discuss. Over the last 17 years, Schneider has taken the lead on dream projects like Barnboogle Dunes and the Dismal River Red Course in the Sandhills of Nebraska. And he's contributed vital ideas to Old McDonald, St. Andrew's Beach, Cape Kidnappers, the Renaissance Club, and many others. Recently, he's helped Doak complete and open the Gunamata course at the National in Australia, and he's continuing ongoing consultation and restoration work at historic courses like Lanark in Pennsylvania and Hollywood in New Jersey. It's difficult to imagine Renaissance design in any other configuration than its current one. The symbiosis between the five of them, at least from the outside looking in, and based on the stunning work they've produced, seems elemental, enduring, almost inevitable. Brian Schneider has been an indispensable electron in the formation of that powerful nucleus. Okay, I don't know anything about physics, so that probably doesn't make any sense, but you get the picture. To me, it's a rare treat to get to talk to one of the great artists of Renaissance design. In my opinion, we don't get to hear their voices nearly enough. I believe you'll come away from listening to this conversation knowing Schneider as a designer in full. He's extremely intelligent and utterly competent, and the experience he has traveling the world and building some of the greatest works of this generation is staggering. So let's listen to him. I introduce to you, Brian Schneider. Let's do something a little different and start off with, and we'll call this the the Brian Schneider Year in Review. And we'll just kind of pick your brain and figure out what's been on your mind, where you've been, and, and what you've seen in the last year. So we'll start off by, I'll ask you, what was the best piece of land you saw this year? 
Oh, see. <laughs> With a golf course or without? Either one. Either one. You know, because I'm sure you see undeveloped tracks that you think have a lot of potential. I do, yeah. And, you know, I've, I've been to New South Wales and Crystal Downs and, you know, some great existing courses this year that you know, are magical pieces of land. But, um, you know, the first one that pops into my head is in Australia. You know, last this time last year, we were just finishing up the renovation of what was then called the Ocean Course at the National Golf Club. Uh, about an hour south of Melbourne and Cape Shank right. down in the Mornington Peninsula which is just loaded with beautiful ground. Um, and the piece of land we got to work with was pretty special as well, but there's a, a chunk of land adjacent to that golf course and the Muna golf course. Um, that's really special. And I don't know that the club owns it, um, but it's a great backdrop for the existing golf courses. If, you know, if nothing else, um, it's a great backdrop if it never gets developed, mm-hmm. but it's just a part of the world where there's so much beautiful land that, uh, you could just keep building and building and building, but that's that's a pretty special spot there. How does it differ yeah. than the land that you were building on with the Gunamata course? You know, our our piece of land is big, big rolling hills and kind of soft contours, um, really big scale. And when you head south from there a little bit, um, that adjacent chunk is a little smaller scale undulation. Um, softer ground gently but some more abrupt features more kind of human scale uh undulations topography uh-huh. that uh, i think it'd be fantastic for golf and then you know beyond that are some of the most intriguing hills just grass covered hills that are grazed by sheep and cattle really abrupt and steep hills um, dunes that again are just a fantastic backdrop for the golf they have there and that's the first thing you see on the entrance drive. Um, you know, you're kind of winding your way up over the top of this ridge and then crashing down towards the golf course, looking out at the ocean through this amazing topography. It's one of the best entrance drives in the game, I think. You know, I was <clears throat> I had Jim Urbina on recently, who you know well. And one of the things that, that occurred to me when we were talking was how strange it is that you know, around 2000 or, or, or so, right when, you know, Pacific Dunes was being built, th- there was this conventional wisdom that pretty much all the great golf sites had been used up. And that had been the conventional wisdom for, for decades because golf courses had migrated, you know, into the cities and then out into the suburbs. And just a lot of golf was built on not great sites. So so it was a revelation when a piece of land like Pacific Dunes or Sand Hills comes up, but, you know, that... They, they were thought to be pretty rare and, and few and far between. And as we've gone through the years, we've realized that there are so many profound, stunning golf sites undeveloped around the world, whether it's in, you know, Southern Australia or on islands off the coast of Australia or in Southeast Asia, the, the dunescapes you see in Vietnam and places. It's The world all of a sudden looks looks much more open than it used to, doesn't it? Yeah, that's the key. I mean, all the places you just mentioned are are you know, a flight or two away from where most people are living. Um, so they're not exactly convenient, but, you know, abandoned dunes and sand hills before it have proved that golfers are kind of crazy that way. And if you build something good enough, uh, people will make the effort to get out to see it. So, you know, getting to abandoned from the East coast, getting into the sand hills from anywhere in America is a, a bit of a challenge, but there's something pretty wonderful about getting to those far flung places too. I mean, we got to work in the sand hills a bit years ago at dismal river club and you know it was a six-hour drive from 
Omaha, mm-hmm. right? Usually fly into. Um, and once you're out there, it's, it's a pretty special place, you know, just being that far away from the rest of the world is pretty cool. You know, I say that having had the benefit of being able to go home every few weeks, <laughs> unlike the, the crew of interns we had out there that were stuck there all summer. And, uh, you know, when people ask what it's like to work in a remote place like that, I found those guys who drive an hour and a half each way to go to Applebee's on a Friday night for entertainment. It's, you know, it can, it can wear you out a little bit, but uh, yeah. there are a lot of special places in the world that, you know, that's, that's one of the great things about golf is that nobody, nobody I know would ever think to go to the Sand Hills, Nebraska, unless there was great golf out there. And golf takes you to all these really cool spots that you, uh, that wouldn't be on your radar otherwise, you know? Yeah, for sure. You know, first of all, I just, you were th- talking about dismal. I was like thinking how the experience of building a course in that location or a location like that is completely different than how <laughs> the golfer, the journeyman is going to experience it. These guys are, you said they're driving like an hour and a half to go to Applebee's and, but anybody who visits that club or a member is going to, you know, be eating, you know, the best, you know, ribeye steak inside the, you know, the golf house and drinking whiskeys. They're not driving to an hour and a half to Applebee's. You're right. You're right. And we've had both sides of that experience, you know, We've worked places like Barnboogle, um, where we were the first one in. You know, there was no golf there. There was no lodge built. And Bridport's a perfectly charming little town. And uh, we had a couple decent dinner options. But, you know, Bill and Ben got to go second. And by that point, the resort had been built. They had golf to play in the evening. Um, and we've experienced that at places like Old McDonald and, uh, you know, some of the other places we've followed, Bill and Ben or others. And it's generally pretty good to go second. Um, yes. you, you get to yeah. enjoy the perks of the, the development that's come before you. Yeah. Yeah. Like going first, um, at Cabot links or, or sand Valley or stream song is, yeah. Like you said, it's not as good as going second or third there. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I can't wait to work at sand Valley next year. And we've got, uh, three golf courses to, to mess around with after work. And, uh, yeah, one of the best, uh, what is it? A pork shank, I think. Oh God. Yeah. They serve in the, in the clubhouse. Which, yeah. Yeah. It's worth the trip alone it'll be good to follow up there yeah well i want to come back to dismal in a little bit but on this concept of of you know taking a, a piece of land in a faraway place and turning it into a destination uh, golf experience i wonder if is there a, do you feel like there's a and you're not i know you're not mike kaiser so you don't have access to the numbers exactly but is your sense that there's a finite audience who can take advantage of those types of trips and is it enough to sustain what's already been built, or is that a, a growing market? Are we cultivating younger, more enthusiastic travelers that can continue to grow that piece of the the puzzle? I think it's time dependent. I mean, you know, the economy's doing well right now. You know, you look at the restaurant scene is booming in every city in the in the country, and craft beer is exploding. Craft everything is exploding. So people are people are spending. You know, and that affects golf, certainly. Um, you know, as long as the economy is doing well, people will have that extra time, that extra money to, to get to those places. Um, you know, I think we we also tend to focus on the places that have been successful, Bandon or Streamsong or Sand Valley or the Sand Hills. There are places that have struggled. You know, there have been remote, remote developments that haven't fared quite as well financially. Um so, you know, it's, it's not a surefire recipe for success just to build something pretty cool in a, in a far-flung place. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more that goes into it than that. But 
I think there probably is a finite number, and I think that number probably changes as the economy goes up and down a bit. Um, but there's still more of that development going on. And, you know, Mr. Kaiser's adage that one plus one doesn't necessarily equal two, it, it equals something more than two is probably correct. That having a, you know, having a, a bigger facility in places like Cabot or Sand Valley only increases the attraction. Mm-hmm. That if you can go to a place for a few nights as opposed to popping in for one round of golf, um, it's certainly more attractive. So I think you know, resorts like that will continue to grow beyond eighteen hole complexes. Just sticking on the, on this topic for another minute, and talking about the concept of coming in, you know, doing the second course or the third course, or, and at Streamsong, yeah, that was built concurrently. The red and uh, or the red and the blue courses were built side by side at the same time. When you go to these places, how typically? W- Will you look at what's there existing, you know, built by your contemporaries and, and draw inspiration and study those golf courses? And, and does, do those, does the existing golf course play into how you're going to design your golf course? We were definitely keeping an eye on what Bill and Ben's guys were doing at Streamsong. Um, and we drove through their work every morning to get to our portion of the site. So we were keeping an eye on it, but I don't know, you know, Streamsong, I don't think we were trying to do anything intentionally different. Um, you know, we have different styles, but at the same time, there are differences between the way that Tom and Bill approach routing and approach construction. Um, so those things were always going to make each golf course a little bit different. I was just there last week, actually, at Streamsong. And you know, I, I think, you know, Gil and Jim and their guys had a very different piece of land than we did and and i think you know it was one of their goals to purposely do something very different which they accomplished um and built a really fun golf course but you know i I think at sand valley i don't know if we're necessarily if tom is necessarily reacting to the scale of mammoth dunes particularly but also sand valley i mean the, the original course at sand valley is a really big golf course um, and everyone thought so until Mammoth Dunes came along, which dwarfs it. No kidding. Um, which is a really, you know, I love width. I love finding your golf ball. That's great. Um, but the site we're going to work on is generally more intimate in scale, just topographically. And I think it lends itself to a smaller golf course. And I, I think we're all thrilled that the Kaisers are, are um, willing to try something a little different there and create something on a smaller scale that you can play quickly. And, you know, we'll still have some width. We'll still be able to, you know, help people find their balls and get around. But, uh, you know, we're, we're aiming to build something around 6,000 yards and a par of 68 or 69. And, uh, hopefully, you know, that translates to three and a half hour rounds and, and it's not going to be a pushover either. Um, it'll be a challenging golf course, but, but very much different than the other two golf courses there, if not necessarily reaction to them. Mm-hmm. Did you have a, what was the site selection like? Did you have a choice of, of different areas on that massive property to work on? <laughs> we have several times. <laughs> um, yeah, Tom has made a number of trips up there, and my my visits with him go back several years before um, before anything was built. And then, you know, when when Bill and Ben selected their site, kind of in the center of the property, um, we had singled out another corner of the property that we really liked. And then eventually settled on another part of the property we really liked, uh, both of which are different from the property that we're going to be working on next year, which is testament to 
the quality of that site overall. I mean, there's there's a lot of great golf over there, and we're in no way disappointed to be working where we're going to be working. Um, I don't feel like we're settling for a lesser piece of property. I think it, you know, the land we're going to be working with really suits the concept that Tom came up with. Um, but it's it's just a beautiful place with a bunch of great land and as much sand as you want, which is probably more important than anything. I think when when I think of, of Sand Valley, and I'm sure most people kind of envision it if they've been whether they've been there or seen pictures they envision you know you all this all this all you need to do is go in and and take out trees and then just like kind of push some sand around and and voila you've got you know amazing golf course but it's you know looking back on pictures especially of mammoth dunes that was a fairly looks like a fairly major construction project not necessarily but I mean, everything was was stripped away, and 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 the shaping goes, you know, from the fairways all the way up into the trees, and it, it was really a, a massive artistic pre- presentation as well as a massive golf course. Am I being sort of like, do I not understand construction well enough? Is that something that happened at, at the original Sand Valley Golf Course? Is that, that you know, this a total kind of overturning of the soil and clearing and shaping and pushing from wall to wall, side to side, front to back? Is, is that something that that you will have to do it at Sedge Valley as well, or is there a way that you can approach it with a little more of a hands-off style that we typically associate with Renaissance? You know, most of the property was treed. You know, I'm, I'm sure you know that it's been a kind of a plantation pine forest for years. So, you know, a good chunk of the property rem- required removal of those pines. Um, you know, there are some hardwoods and other things scattered about, but a good chunk of the property was cleared. You know, to create both of the first two golf courses, but you know, to their credit, the Kaisers are really proactive about restoring the native prairie there. Um, so you know, they own a considerable amount of property beyond just where the golf courses are, and are actively clearing those you know, the additional land they have of trees to restore prairie, just because they think that's a really good thing to do, which a lot of golfers are never see or know about. Uh, but they're, you know, they've been doing that in the Sand Valley property as well. They've been taking out trees to try to restore prairie, and sedge is part of that. You know, the, the working name, which is is not set in stone yet, uh, for our golf course is Sedge Valley, and you know, the restoration of the sedge is part of that. Um, so portions of our property have already been cleared of the pines, um, just with the goal of restoring prairie, and you know, we benefit from that because there's less clearing to do, but. You know, there remain parts of our property that still have the pines on them. We have been clearing. We've got five holes prepped at this point. Um, and, you know, part of the process they've developed is, you know, flipping the sand. You know, once once the trees are cleared and all the debris is stripped out of the way, they're marching down everything that will be regrassed, which is, you know, really broad corridors with big excavators and flipping the soil to, to bring the sand to the top to improve drainage and make a more workable, clean surface. Um, but yeah, in, the, in the case of Mammoth Dunes, I mean, if you look from the, you know, as you're playing the 15th hole, the right edge of the 15th hole, all the way across to the right edge of the first hole, I mean, that's got to be a driver eight iron. You know, it's, they're massively wide corridors and nearly all of that was stripped and flipped. Um, so it's, it's a, you know, it's a daunting thing to consider but it actually goes pretty quickly you know working in the material they're working in it, it goes faster than i expected it to and the turf up there is fantastic so it's um, you know it produces a great surface but i think you know we're fortunate david 
chose a pretty severe dramatic site. So I think there was probably more earth moving to do up there certainly than we'll have to deal with on our golf course. You know, a lot of our golf course really is laying there. The topography is great. Um, I don't envision a whole lot of big scale earth moving, certainly, and even big shoves. I don't think there's going to be much of that out there. Right. Yeah. You mentioned how when Sand Valley opened the original golf course, it was it was perceived as a large, huge, really uh, kind of enormous project, enormous tract of land, enormous in scale. And nobody thinks about it like that anymore now, now that Mammoth Dunes comes along. You know, Again, David's site is hilly and pretty severe in spots, and that suggests width. You know, when when you're playing across a steep slope or up and over a steep slope, you need place. You know, you need space for the ball to run out, especially on those firm surfaces they have up there with the fescue and the sand. You just need more space for the ball to run out down those slopes, um, and we've got less of that. You know, our site's not nearly as hilly, so we don't need quite as much room for run out. Um, but you know, the, the nature of David's site dictated the width to a certain degree and the nature of our site will, will suggest that things can be a little more narrow, a little more, uh, compact and intimate. Um, and you know, therefore a little more challenging, you know, not every ball that's finding, finding trouble on the sides of David or Bill's holes, um, are landing there on the fly. Uh, you know, in spite of the fact that people are hitting it further and wider than they ever have, um, you know, part of the width there is just just the nature of the ground and, and the firmness of the turf. Um, and, you know, the, the, again, the contour of our site will suggest that things can be a little bit narrower. And, you know, maybe the green sites can be a little tighter. There is a lot of room around, around David's green sites. Um, and I think we'll probably tighten things up a little bit just because we've, you know, Tom has found, you know, more intimate green sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that'll be part of the challenge. Going back to the year in review concept, um, what was the biggest surprise or inspiration or maybe an aha moment that you had this year, whether it was in your travel seeing a, a new golf course or, or an experience that you had on the job site? There are probably a couple different answers to that. You know, I, I think surprise and aha moment um, are two different things. And, you know, an aha moment I had was earlier in the year, you know, we we re- we renovated Memorial Park in Houston, um, which will be hosting the Houston Open going forward for the next few years. And we worked with Brooks Kepka on that project, uh, which was a real treat. You know, we got to spend a couple days with Brooks earlier this year, just very casually wandering around the golf course, picking his brain, getting his thoughts, and you know, working in Houston, working the soils we were dealing with there, and his feedback really suggested that we didn't go crazy with the bunkers there. Uh, I think as a result, we've got 19 bunkers on the golf course, which, you know, you talk to Brooks and, you know, he will do whatever it takes to avoid a severe fairway bunker. If he feels like it could cost him a half stroke, he'll either, you know, lay up with a different club or swing harder to make sure he carries it (laughs) or, you know, whatever, if if there's a bunker that he feels is going to get in his way, um, he'll just avoid it, whatever that means. Cause even if he lays up, he's still probably got a seven iron into the green on most holes. Um, and green side bunkers, he, he's trying to make every green side bunker shot he has, you know, unless he's at Hoy Lake or St. Andrews, I'm assuming, but everything they play in the tour, including the, the major sites in the U S he's trying to make every bunker shot, you know? And I think a lot of good players think that way. Um, 
Whereas you know the average muni golfer in Houston is not thinking that way. So limiting the number of bunkers suits both of those purposes. And we tried to do some different things to to you know create interest and difficult shots for guys like Brooks when they're playing in the tournament that aren't going to bother the the everyday golfer all that much. You know, they they crank golfers through there. It's like sixty five thousand rounds a year. Um and it rains a bunch. You know, they get a lot of heavy rainstorms down there. So building a bunch of bunkers isn't practical from a maintenance standpoint either. But that concept is certainly in the back of my head more than it was before. That, you know, maybe we can find more sustainable, more clever ways of challenging good players without driving the 25 handicapper nuts. Um, so, you know, that was a really cool experience and, and really kind of hit home for me, something we've been thinking and talking about for a while, but really got to put that into practice at, uh, at Memorial Park. As far as surprises go, you know, I, I got to spend a little time in New England this year, which I haven't in the past. I've traveled quite a bit, and I'd love to see golf courses, but I hadn't spent much time in either New Hampshire or Vermont and had the opportunity to go to, to New Hampshire in September, I think it was, August or September, and had an extra couple days to slowly make my way back to New Jersey where I was working and uh, got to see a handful of little golf courses up there that I'd wanted to see for a long time, including Tiamat. It's kind of a Travis nut and got to see his nine hole course at uh, Grand Leiden on Lake Sunapee, which is a, a really cool little spot. Nobody would mistake it for a great golf course. It's on a really hilly site, but it's one of the best sets of greens he ever built best and most severe. It's a wild set of greens, but there's some beautiful stuff there. So that was really, really fun for me to see. And I haven't seen much work from styles and Van Cleek, um, and got to see four or five of their courses on that little trip, including Hooper, which everyone's talking about, um, just down the road from there. And I think it's just across the border into Vermont. It's a place called Brattleboro, which was originally nine holes by Styles and Van Cleek that was expanded to 18 holes by a, a local architect not that long ago. But the original nine there is absolutely fantastic. Um, and to me, is every bit as interesting as Hooper. Um so that was really fun to see, and a, a pleasant surprise, a place I really hadn't heard anything about and just kind of stumbled onto and uh, thought was great. Is it mostly the case on the, those little kind of out-of-the-way golf courses that don't have you know big, powerful memberships, maybe they're nine-hole courses? Is it often the case or usually the case that those courses haven't really been altered or renovated out of their original style? Yeah, that's the sense... I have of golf in New England in general, um, which to me feels very Scottish that, you know, there's a lot of rugged land up there and the architects often had to come up with creative solutions either through routing or, you know, green sites or, you know, doing something on the rock that they've created during the construction process that they, they have to come up with novel solutions. And it feels like over the past century, the golfers in that part of the country have been happy to accept that they've got something quirky, unique and really enjoy it. And generally haven't gone out of their way to try and improve things and mess them up in the process. Um, yeah, I think there's a different culture in, in new England that I found really appealing and I, I need to devote some more time. I want to, you know, spend the time with my friend Bruce Hefner the other day, who's done a fair bit of work up that way. And he said, just fly in Portland, Maine and take a week driving north along the coast and 
you know, check out all the little nine holers that, uh, that he knows up there. And, you know, there are a bunch of cool little places to play that again, nobody's ever heard of, but you'd be more than happy to play every day. So I look forward to doing that soon. That's sort of like an archaeological exploration, you know, where you're going and visiting like an old cave or a ruptured canyon and you can see the, you can see into the past by looking at, you know, the, the striations of, of rock and sediment, how it builds up and, you know, driving up the coast of Maine and popping into little towns and seeing these <laughs> nine hole courses that sort of defined, you know, early 20th century American golf. It, it is like going back in time. It, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had another experience like that just recently. We've been doing a little work in philadelphia lately and um we had a rainy sunday so i went out to see the whiskey course at philly country or philly cricket club sorry um and afterwards i had a couple hours of daylight left so i ran by the old saint martin course that's also part of philly cricket club it's just nine holes but it hosted the u.s open twice i think in the first decade of this century um or of the, the 20th century um so they've preserved six or seven of the holes largely intact, um, but it's really simple. But the just the feel of the club from the buildings around the clubhouse, there's a massive cricket ground out back, and the golf course is really simple. Uh, not easy, but just very simple. And you know, it really has a sense of place and felt like golf, you know, 100 years ago. Uh, that was really cool to see. What was the what or where was the place or the experience where you felt the most joy this year on a golf course or on a job site? Are, do you get emotional mm-hmm. when you're outdoors and, and experiencing golf? Yeah, I love what I do. I love what I do, and I love being on golf courses. Um, yeah, I, I tell people that you know I would I would absolutely do the work I do for free, but I get paid to be away from home, maybe away from my family, but. Yeah, the work is fantastic. It's it's hard not to be excited by it, and, and to you know it, it, every project means something to you, um, and it's hard to single out one place over another. Um, you can give me a few. <laughs> you know, I had the oh, how long ago was it? Um, seven or eight years ago, we started building a golf course in France in Saint Emilion, which is. You know, quickly became one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, we had a great client there and a really beautiful site. And the project took a few years to get it done. Uh, the golf course is maturing nicely. And we went back to make a few tweaks late this, I guess it was July, went back. I love France. And in all the time I'd spent over there, I'd never taken the time to go to Paris. I just, I was really content in Bordeaux and that part of the country and exploring down there that I'd never made it to Paris, but I, I decided that I was going to make that trip this year and see a bunch of golf up that way so i spent like five and a half days around paris um seeing the great old simpson and cold courses i think i saw i saw like 300 holes of golf in five and a half days i think 17 or 18 courses um both around paris and then i went up the coast to the 2k and hardelow um Limaru. it was fantastic i had a blast and you know the the days were long, the courses weren't very busy, and I could just fly around and stare at things and just had a blast playing golf. The weather was perfect. Um, that was a great, great little trip and really cool to see Simpson's work. And I, I picked up the new biography by Hawtrey earlier this year, which is a fantastic book, but um, you know, it really lit something in me that, that 
made me want to get over and see his work there. I'd seen a bit of his work in the UK and in Ireland. Um, Baltray is one of my favorite courses in Ireland, which is really clever. And I think he had kind of a subtle genius to him that a lot of other architects didn't have. I mean, I think Simpson, to me, his work really seems to exemplify the best parts of the old course, perhaps more than any other architect. I think he was really clever and cunning um, and understood the value of subtle contours in front of and around the greens in a way that uh, that really I connect with. So it was great to both learn more about him before going over there and then also to experience a lot of his best work, uh, which certainly didn't disappoint. I haven't been to, I've been to France, but I haven't seen any golf courses there, but it, there's just from photographs and, and, and what is related through other people. It, it seems like there's, there's almost like something atmospheric about those golf courses. That's unique to those places, to, to France or, you know, to, to Montfortaine or thing, you know, they just, they photograph differently. The, the color looks different. There seems to be just a richness in the, in the air around them. And maybe I'm romanticizing that, but did you, is, is, did you experience something like that? Is there something unique about the, the, those particular places? Yeah. You mentioned more Fontaine, which is, is definitely a special place. Um, you know, our client in France had arranged access to a lot of the clubs for me. Um, so I showed up at Morfontaine, you know, pressed the button at the gate. They let me in, walked into the clubhouse, uh, was greeted by a, a kind lady in the office there and, you know, told her my name, told her my contacts that it had been arranged through the manager. And she replied, well, the manager's not in today. Um, but let me take a look through his book and just see if you're in there. <laughs> and of course I wasn't. <laughs> right. So, that so always I'm happens. Out a little bit. I'm like, Oh boy. Um, she said, you know what? There's nobody here today. So, you know, we trust you. Have a great day. Go on out and enjoy yourself, which I did. I didn't see another golfer there the entire day. Um, went around the big course, uh, went around the, the Vire afterwards. They invited me to have lunch in the clubhouse. Um, it was a fantastic day and it's a really special place and a, a very good golf course. Um, the, the nine hole course, there's a bunch of fun. Um, as is the big course, but the contrast between the two is really cool, and it's it's a great place to spend a day. But the other clubs too. I mean, St. Germain is a fantastic cold course. Um, the vibe of the club, you know, the atmosphere there. To your point, uh, you know that that's another beauty. Fontainebleau. Those clubs around Paris definitely have something going on. Um, clubhouses are great. They just you know the, the French have life pretty well figured out i think between <laughs> the food and the wine yeah. and, and it extends to golf as well but yeah they've been at it for a long time and and uh yeah they they know how to go about life uh working down in saint Emilion, did you get into the wines there i did yeah a bit it's hard not to i mean i would imagine it's just it's you know wine is a part of that culture like golf is in scotland you know and it's just kind of ever-present um, when we were building the golf course, our, you know, occasionally our client would join us for lunch and, you know, we'd be operating machines all day, but you know, a glass or two at lunch, that won't hurt you. You know, it'd be fine. <laughs> so, um, it's just part of the culture there and it's, it's cool. I remember my first trip over there, just driving out towards St. Emilion from, from Bordeaux and then onto the site where, you know, everywhere you look is covered with grapes. 
um, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin and it's, it's similar there where everything is covered with corn, um, or soybeans to a certain degree. But in France, that part of France, every field is covered with grapes. And it's, I think there's, you know, roughly a thousand little wineries in St. Emilion alone. You know, they're, they're tiny. There are no massive conglomerates that have taken over these huge chunks of land. Um, so much of it is still on a really small scale, which I think is really neat. So now when you're back at home or you're traveling around the States, do you seek out wines from a particular region like saint Emilion or, or just Bordeaux in general? I do. You know, when I, when I see a label, I recognize I, I'm attracted to it. Um, I'm also generally of the mindset that you probably don't have to spend more than 10 or $12 to get a nice bottle of wine. So <laughs> the, the St. Emilio wines don't usually fall in that, in that, uh, that price range. But Definitely not by the time they make it to the United States. No, no, no. When you're over there, they do. Yeah. Um, Gr- the the uh, greatest wines for $10. Yeah. There's, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how that works, but it does. It's part of it's, yeah. you know, you're in the, it's a time and place, but yeah, it, I never get that exp- that same sensation over here with inexpensive wine. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. The other cool thing about wine in France, um, you know, my first exposure, real exposure to winemaking was when we worked in New Zealand years ago. And so much of, you know, we worked in Hawke's Bay at Cape Kidnappers and, you know, a bunch of wineries around and, you know, everyone explains then that, you know, the, the best sites for, for growing grapes there were gravelly sites where you, you know, there was as much drainage as you'd want. You could control all the inputs um, and get consistency and that sort of thing. And I never really understood the value of vintage, you know, having been exposed to wine that way, where year by year, they're, you know, the weather obviously changes, but they have control over a lot of the inputs and a lot of the factors that lead to the quality of the, the yield that year. And then going over to France uh, is a totally different approach to winemaking, you know, and a totally different result where they have far less control over irrigation and you know, the soil really matters, the terroir. Um, and, you know, if, if things are going great, but you have three days of bad weather, you're really promising yield all of a sudden, uh, doesn't look so good. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you have a, a bad vintage and, you know, that was really fascinating for me to, to appreciate that side of winemaking as well, after being exposed to a different approach early on. Yeah. In so many parts of Europe in particular, the, the difference between hailed in you know love lovely vintages and respected vintages and kind of in between vintages had had always been you know was it warm enough to get the grapes ripe could they get sugar levels up so that wines could express themselves and you know those aren't really fruit forward wines to begin with but that was necessary because in places like in burgundy and the loire and champagne you know it was hard to ripen grapes and now with you know, the, the climate changing and, and having year after year after, you know, of having, you know, hot harvests, you know, that's not a problem anymore. And <laughs> like Bordeaux may not, you know, in 50 years, maybe a completely different style of wine it may have to replant the vineyards and, and then regions north of Bordeaux that are cooler will become the new Bordeaux. And, you know, everything's moving, all, everything's moving north essentially because of the weather. Hopefully it's a subtle enough change where, where our, our tastes change along with the, the changes in the grapes. It's like the, yeah. the, frog, the frog in the, in the pot on the stove. Um, well, hopefully but, that, that actually doesn't happen, first of all. Maybe something, that, something can be done. 
yeah there is that it's a little scary yeah well it's what was your scary. um we just talked about you know some joyous moments did you have any uh major disappointments this year or or, or things that you know you'd like a do-over no i really didn't um no i i, I don't think i tend to think that way nothing pops in my head that's pretty you know, the, good the one i wouldn't say disappointment but um i don't know if you've had the opportunity to meet archie baird but you know no tom tom doke has been really thoughtful in making sure that uh we've all been able to spend time to meet and spend time with archie over the years and you know working in scotland yeah and just for everyone why don't you explain who archie is um archie is a scottish fellow lived in um Everlady, I believe, near Gullen. You know, played Gullen, played Muirfield, um, and also ran a little museum out of the, the, I think it was the old pro shop or near the clubhouse at Gullen there. Uh, just loaded with artifacts you know, and would take you on a 45-minute journey through this little museum that you, know, you would learn more about the history of the game in that 45 minutes than you could reading copious books and other sources of information that way, but he was just a, a really neat, charming, wise, generous guy that absolutely loved the game and knew a lot about its history and could explain it brilliantly. Um, Archie just passed away a couple of weeks ago, which is a, a huge loss. And I was fortunate to spend you know, a, a bit of time with him, both playing golf and in his museum and, and more casually. And I'm really sorry for those that didn't get a chance to meet him because he's, he was a, a brilliant guy and you know, the game is certainly um, certainly worse off for his loss. What will become of the museum and the other things that he was involved with? Do you know? I don't know. No, I can't say that I've followed up on that, but I trust that there are plenty of people around there that uh, that cared for Archie and cared for his, his mission that uh, will make sure it, it is put to good use good. and well taken care of. Yeah. Well, just to finish up this uh, kind of year in review segment of the podcast, um, on a more positive note, did you have an overall highlight of the year? You know, if, if in 20 years you're going to look back and remember something from 2019, is there something that you think might be an early candidate? Um, you know, the, the thing that pops into my head right now, maybe because it's most recent, is the, the work that we've just been doing at Lanark Country Club in Philadelphia. You know, I've I've done a fair bit of consulting work over the years and have a number of consulting clients that generally my aim is restoration. And I don't use that word lightly. I I'm very much an advocate of strict restoration in regards to doing everything I can to understand the history of the golf course and to the extent possible, put it back the way it used to be, um, with the exception of adding tees. But you know, most of the clubs I work at, and I, you know, part of that is tied to the clubs I choose to work with too. Um, you know, I, I my clients are places that I I feel are well suited to my approach and to my preferences. So, the clubs I work with, I think, uh, are important places to be restored. And, and I really try hard to 
gather as much photographic evidence uh, through aerial photos, but also ground level photos to try and put things back as exactly as possible. And Lanark was a bit of a different situation there. You know, it's, it's an old golf course. It was laid out originally by Alexander Finley uh, around the turn of the century, expanded to 27 holes at one point, um, and then brought back to 18 holes in the 40s by Jamie McGovern, who used to work for Donald Ross. And it's seen a lot of change over the years. Um, its most notable moment was hosting the 1958 PGA Championship, won by Dow Finsterwald the first year it was held uh, in stroke play right. rather than match play. Mm-hmm. But even looking at that golf course, um, you know, in the back of my head, I still had you know the thing I talked about earlier about working Memorial Park. Fewer bunkers is better. There were a lot of kind of superfluous bunkers on the golf course in its earlier days that didn't make a lot of sense for me to restore it didn't give the impression that it was really an interesting golf course more of a penal one and it's a really nice piece of land it's a it's a strong golf course it's a tiny piece of land uh, i think it's about 110 or 120 acres including range and clubhouse and parking and all that um, but it's a really nice piece of land and i thought we could do something more interesting with the golf course rather than going back to what it used to be and the club uh, bought into that and we've been trying some really different kind of funky old-fashioned stuff out there that has been a lot of fun and the the club has been a great client they've given me an enormous amount of creative freedom and we we've run with that a bit and really had a lot of fun creating some stuff that uh, was great to build and I, i really look forward to playing I'll, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to your to your Instagram account because you have some really amazing photographs of Lanark. Um, so so the so for instance, like one of the things that stands out are these cops mounds that that you've built around the golf course. So they're they're just grassy mounds. They're they're very abrupt. You know, they're not tied into any kind of landform. There's something that you might have seen in a golf course in 1900. Was there was there evidence of anything that there? Or is that are those features just you know kind of your imagination and your interpretation of a, of a certain period of American golf. There was a bit of mounding scattered around the golf course early on. Um, some of which has survived to this day, but nothing really like, you know, that the cops features you're, you're referring to are generally between the second and third holes there. Um, and part of that, you know, there, there are big golf holes in that part of the property. And part of that was kind of filling up space between the holes, the second holes, a dog leg, right. That, you know, there is a temptation to try and cut the corner there, and we didn't want, you know, we wanted to enforce that dog leg without building a bunch of bunkers, so we we built something else instead. And part of that was, you know, we, we tried to be really efficient throughout the project, and that included, you know, there's a lot of sod stripping and debris generated, and we decided to bury all that. Yeah, I was going to ask you what was under those things. Yeah, no, and we didn't bury it there because burying a bunch of sod under mounds is just asking for trouble. Um because you know, it'd be really fertile. You'd have a lot of um, a lot of fertility in there. That the grass would be too happy. But instead, we dug berry pits all around the, all around the property and generated big piles of soil. You know, put the trash in the in the berry pits, and then had all the soil that we needed to do something with. So, rather than generating more soil by building bunkers, we decided to create above ground features with that with that extra material, um, which in some parts of the property have translated into those cups and. Not just the the kind of linear berms that we did, but we did a bunch of mounding here and there and tried a lot of different features, uh, little furrows and ridges. And we tried all kinds of things there. That, um, so the, the 
you know, it's kind of all within one theme, but the specifics vary throughout uh, throughout what we've done. And we've only done nine holes so far. Next fall, we'll come back and do the other nine across. There's a road that separates one side of the property from the other uh, with nine holes on each. So next fall, we'll go back and do the other nine on the other side of the road. But uh, but it was fun. It was fun just creating those other shapes and you know thinking really hard about placement of features and then doing something different than bunkers. Um, and I, I really like the way it turned out. And I, I think the club is excited about it as well. Yeah. I mean, just from photographs, it looks, looks really unique and, and creative and the, the bunkering style, and at least in places, how would you describe them? They're almost like drain bunkers. It looks like water kind of flowing into a sinkhole or something. They're, they're set below the natural grade kind of. They are. And, and myopia hunt club, um, is a favorite of mine. Garden city is another. Yeah. And, both of those places have bunkers that are just dug down in the ground as opposed to having something flashed up on the backside. And, and we did a lot of that, just simple shapes that are kind of excavated below grade as opposed to, you know, a lot of times we'll excavate and flip the material kind of on the, the backside to build up a mound or to flash a face. Um, in this case, we would just dig a hole for the bunker and then use the, the material generated to build a, a berm or something adjacent to that but not necessarily connected to it. So we were going for, you know, Garden City and Myopia were, were strong inspirations for the bunkers there. And some of them are really deep. The faces are really steep. Um, you mentioned the pictures I've been posting, and you know, I'm, I'm sure you noticed the, the different color of the turf on those faces. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're really steep, the superintendent, Brendan Byrne, is a brilliant guy and a, a great, not only great with turf, but great at presenting a really good surface for golf, which is more important. Um, and he felt that zoysia grass would be a, a great option for the steepness of those faces, something you wouldn't have to spray, something you wouldn't have to mow nearly as often as if we chose another grass, um, and something that would really hold up well. So that zoysia grass on those faces, which looks a little odd this time of year. It kind of looks like... Uh, Scottsdale, when mm-hmm. of course has been overseeded, but uh, in the summertime should visually blend right in with everything else and be a, a sustainable uh, turf grass choice for for those steep faces. So he, he was very generous in letting us build the shapes we wanted to, um, and came up with a great solution. I think uh, from a turf perspective that'll allow him to maintain those without uh, without a whole lot of trouble. Yeah, there's something so compelling about seeing features like that and. Some you know the the work that you've done at Lanark, it's because it's it's pure architecture in a way. It's real architecture. It's you know the site demands that uh, somebody come in with an idea of how to make golf holes on this property. You know it's it's not blending into nature. It's it's building things, um, and that that is also prevalent at another course you have had a long relationship with was Hollywood in New Jersey, where another example of. Uh, a golf course that is an ex- really an expression of of the designers, the architect's mind. Travis, you know, did the most notable presentation of that. Um, there's a course there before, but it's really Travis's architecture that you're bringing back there, and it's 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 Gaga. I mean, it's probably the most ornately bunkered <laughs> golf course in the United States, perhaps. That must be a real treat for you to get on properties like that, where you, you know you're really enhancing or Atlantic creating architecture. I mean, that's what it is. <laughs> it, it's a cool place. I love Hollywood. Um, it's one of my favorites. 
and I get to go back there fairly often, but it is Gaga. I mean, when they built the golf course, there were like 250 bunkers. Uh, you look at the old aerial, there's a brilliant old aerial from 1940 that shows nearly all of them. Uh, they survived the depression amazingly. Um, and it was sand all over and it was a sandy site. And, you know, Travis inherited a routing from Isaac Mackey, which, you know, there are two sides to architecture. There's the one where, you know, to your point, the site doesn't offer a lot and you go out and build a bunch. Um, you know, the other side is figuring out a really good routing on a good piece of land and not having to do much. You know, that's a really valuable part of architecture as well. Um, and something that Tom is brilliant at. And the routing that Travis inherited from Mackey was really good. You know, it's a subtle piece of ground, but it's got two two kind of soft ridges that hold a bunch of greens and a bunch of tees. It reminds me of Seminole a little bit in that way that, you know, there's not a lot going on out there, but there are two broad features that he packed a bunch of greens and tees onto and, and used as much as he could. And Travis left most of that intact, but I have no idea what Mackey's greens or bunkers looked like, but Travis went nuts with both of them. And, <laughs> um, you know, the, the bunkering obviously stands out, um, Right now, I think there are about 175 bunkers out there, so we're about 75 short of where it used to be. Um, and there are a few that I'd like to put back. Some of them, you know, the, the boundaries have encroached a little bit, and there are places where we just physically can't put bunkers back. And others, um, you know, somebody's got to pay to build them, somebody's got to pay to maintain them, and, and you know, there's that balance between seeking a full restoration and you know the resources that are available. So we've settled on a good number for now. Um, based on what we could afford to do during the renovation or the restoration a couple of years ago. But, uh, but the greens there are fantastic. And, you know, I, Travis was as good as anybody who's ever lived at building interesting greens and packing a ton of usable and interesting contour in relatively small packages. Um, and Hollywood is absolutely one of his best sets of greens, which makes it one of the best sets of greens in the country. Um, it's a cool place. I love going back there. And their superintendent, Mike Broom, is one of the best in the business. And that guy presents a beautiful surface every day. Um, so it really shows off the architecture on that pretty quiet site. Um, a lot of the shots are kind of at grade, where you're not standing much above or below your target. And it's firm. You know, the turf is tight leading into the, into the greens. And you can really hit any shot you want. In a lot of cases... You don't want to land on the greens. I mean, you want to land it with a lower trajectory, 10 or 20 yards short, which is something I like to do on every golf course. But um, but he really presents it there that you can hit any shot you want. You mentioned that you're going to get a chance to go back and finally finish off the 17th hole. It's a par three. What, what's been the obstacle of getting that hole finished? I think it's mostly money. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think the club is very happy with the work we did years ago and, and maybe a portion of the membership was content with that and didn't realize the value in restoring the 17th hole, um, which was changed in 1988 pretty dramatically. And for good reason. I mean, the, the original hole was a Travis's original version. Of the hole was a 240 yard par three, you know, and the green was about 10 steps from the 18th tee on the right. And about 10 steps from the, seventh green and the left and it's amazing that nobody's ever killed on either of those holes yep um and that survived until 1998 you know the golf course was renovated pretty significantly by 
Dick Wilson back in the 50s, I think, and has seen some other change over the years, but somehow that hole survived. Um, but in 98, uh, the golf course was renovated pretty substantially, and that hole particularly saw a lot of change. The green was moved significantly. The tees were moved. A big valley was dug between the tees and the approach, I think, to generate a bunch of material to redo the bunkers. You know, when, we, when we redid the bunkers, we hauled away an enormous amount of material to their dump, which... You know, it's probably about 12 or 14 feet higher than it used to be because of all that. And I think a lot of that came out of the 17th hole. They, they dug a big pit in front of the 17th hole to generate that material, um, which we'll put back in the pit when we restore it. But, you know, I think we can find some middle ground between where the green is now and where it used to be and slide the tees back a little bit and really put back Travis's version of the hole in a slightly different location. Um, by just shifting things around a little bit, but I think we can get pretty close to putting the hole back almost exactly as it was just shifted for safety reasons. Part of that was between the 17th green and the 18th tees and probably safety related was about a eight or 10 foot high berm that separated the two with a little tunnel underneath it. Hmm. So when you put it out on 17, you walk through this tunnel and a berm to get to the 18th tees. And that's unique. That's part of our plan too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cool. <laughs> wow. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing that. But there's so much crazy stuff. That's out what there. I mean. It, it looks like it's just such a, a singular expression of, of somebody's intellect and artistry and it's all presented in the ground. Like a lot of the, a lot of the, the bunkering, I mean, I, I guess it has a purpose, but it, it's not important if it really functions strategically. Like there's that, that little lacy design of, of bunkers that crosses diagonally off the 12th tee before you kind of get to the fairway that, you know, I don't, probably everybody can hit over that easily, but it's got to have some kind of like more important psychological or aesthetic effect. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think he was just having fun out there. It's yeah. funny. I walked that hole with Tom a couple of years ago and, you know, I made a comment like, well, this is, you know, for flat ground, this is a pretty cool golf hole. And he said, well, if I let you build 50 bunkers on a hole, you could probably come up with something pretty interesting too. <laughs> Um, but you know, the course was built or renovated by Travis in 1918. And that was just on the heels of spending time at Pine Valley. You know, he, he spent a fair bit of time with Crump, you know, giving his input on what was going on. And, you know, theoretically Trump or, uh, Crump, Crump had, uh, assigned Travis the, the task of trying to figure out if it could be played reversibly among other things. Um, but I've got to think that he was pretty strongly influenced by his experiences at Pine Valley when he came to Hollywood and, you know, it's sandy soil, different sand than Pine Valley, but sandy soil you know, near the water. So there's always a breeze. Um, but I'm sure he had Pine Valley in the back of his head when he was doing a lot of the things he did at Hollywood because it's so different than anything else he ever did before. You know, places like Westchester or, East Potomac Park were pretty liberally bunkered, but in a totally different style. And I think some of that might, you know, some of the credit for that might go to a guy named Frank Barrett, who was the green chairman at Hollywood at the time and was really involved in both the design and the construction of Travis's work there. Um, and I don't know, you know, Barrett wrote a bit about the golf course when they were doing the work and shortly after, um, but didn't really give any hint as to what his inspirations might be. But just because it's so different than everything else, I've got to think that Barrett might have played a bit of a role in that too. Well, it's really it's really gratifying that a place like Hollywood is is interested in preserving all of that that style, that featuring, that the bunkering because uh, it's it's probably not easy to do. In fact, 
I recently came across a, a piece of writing from, I think it was 1945. And the writer was, I think at that time, the, the greenkeeper at Sea Island. And he was remembering back to when the courses first opened. And he was talking about the, the Travis Nine there, which is now part of the plantation that Travis built right before he died. And he, said, and he talked about how Travis would, would you know, wave his arms and say, make it bigger, make it more dramatic and more steep and how, how, how kind of yeah, just over the top it was. And, and how thank, this guy's writing how thankful he was that basically the next year when, when Colt, or actually probably just Allison, came to build the, the second nine, uh, they basically wiped out all the Travis and, and kind of flattened <laughs> it out and put their style on it, which was so much more easy for the club to take care of because was, it was going to be such a headache. So, there, I mean, there's, there's a cost I, to, to having that kind of historical uh, expression of, of architecture that exists at Hollywood. There is certainly, um, certainly. Yeah. And you look at a place like East Potomac park for the, the flip side of that coin where, you know, it now serves a you know, it's municipal golf course, 70,000 rounds a year, whatever they do. And, um, uh, certainly not the same budget and certainly not the same traffic. Uh, so they've evolved in a different direction and hopefully will evolve back a bit. Um, there's, there's strong interest in a movement to restore that golf course, which I really hope happens. But, um, yeah, certainly not every club could afford to, to do what we did at Hollywood or main, to maintain that going forward, but they've done a brilliant job with it. Yeah. It's just nice to know that that exists and that people can, can experience that to some level. It is. I think, you know, I'm certainly not the first to make the point, but I think it's, it's really important that, you know, with the great architects of the past, that there are some well-preserved and if not well-preserved, then at least well-restored golf courses that, that show their style, you know, those guys aren't coming back to build anymore. And if we blow them all up, we can't put them back together, especially when you get into greens. If somebody, you know, if, if the greens at Hollywood had been redone in 1998, uh, the 17th was, but that was the only one that was touched. Uh, um, the, tw- the 14th was expanded a bit, but you know, if, if they'd blown up all those greens in 1998, putting them back to what they are right now would be nearly impossible, mm-hmm. you know? So I, th- I think it's, I think it's really important to preserve that stuff because again, they're not coming back to build anymore and, and the golfers of today deserve to see what those guys were doing. You know, it's, it's not unlike going to a museum to see a, a Van Gogh or a Monet or Cezanne. Um, these guys were artists and they built really beautiful, fun, interesting work that, uh, that everyone should, you know, everyone deserves the opportunity to enjoy. Uh, just on this topic, one last thing. We, we've been mentioning this about, you know, when you have a site that, that is not out in the wilderness or in the dunes and you have to create architecture, you have to build features. At what point do you, in your opinion or to your taste, do you stop trying to make anything look natural? You know, and go, maybe going back to the Simpson courses that you saw in France, you know, those are those aren't those are nice golf sites, but they're not links or oceanside sites or the dunes where you can make everything look almost like it just evolved out of nature. But yet they're still kind of with the bunkering style and the way things fit the land. There is an attempt there to make things look naturalistic. And you know, since McKinsey and Simpson's time, that was one of the, the highest ideals in architecture is to make the architecture blend into nature. But at some point, does that? Do you think that ever starts to look almost artificial when you're forcing a quote-unquote naturalistic bunker or greenside or tie-in into a site that's obviously, you know, not natural, a flat site? It can, yeah, certainly. Yeah, doing the the flash sand with the frilly edges on a, a clay site in Georgia 
doesn't necessarily, well, Cusco Will is an exception. That's a <laughs> yeah. beautiful set of bunkering and a really good golf course. Uh, but not everyone is as skilled as Bill Core or Jeff Bradley at doing that work. Um, yeah, I've certainly seen a lot of Parkland golf courses with that style of, you know, everyone talks about bunkering because that's the, the easiest thing to talk about exactly. when, you're, yeah. when you're talking about a look. Um, but there are certainly places where that looks out of place to me, which isn't to say that Rayner's work or Langford's work or Travis's work looks natural in any way. But yeah, I don't know where, I don't know where you draw the line between it should look natural or it should look, or it's okay to look artificial. And I'm glad that there's some of everything out there. You know, I, I think there's certainly been a movement towards building, you know, minimalism is certainly not the right word when it's applied to it, an aesthetic, but you know, a lot of people are using that word to describe flashy ragged edge bunkers these days. And, and a lot of people are doing that work and kind of sick of it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're guilty of doing a lot of that work as well, but I think we tend it's, to it's your fault. restrict that to the, well, yeah, just, <laughs> um, we tend to restrict that work to our, our Sandy sites. Right. You know, and, and I don't think we're doing a lot of that on, on heavy soils, um, Parkland sites. And I think trying to find something different, whether it fits the site or not, um, can be cool. And, you know, I think it still does go back to finding cues on any site that suggest doing something. You know, if at any time you can find something on a site to riff off of or to, to implement, that's a good thing. You know, you, you first try to find your inspiration on the site, and if the site doesn't offer much, then you, you can import ideas from elsewhere. But um, but I'm all for people doing different things that you necessarily haven't seen before mm-hmm. or don't see often. Um, there, are, there are plenty of cool, frilly bunkers in the world at this point. Um, maybe it's time to try something a little different. Well, going back to a course that was built on sand. I'd like to talk for a minute about Dismo River, the red course you built there, and maybe as a way to get into that project and, and what your ideas were when you were conceiving of that and building it. The other course there, the white course, had been there for a while. It was built after Sand Hills. And while I, I happen to think it's a really fun, really good golf course, a lot of people had problems with it. And I would love to get your assessment of, of the white course. And I know it's evolved quite a bit and it's, it's uh, seen quite a few changes actually since it was originally opened but i'd love to hear your assessment of the white course and and maybe what you took away from that golf course and sand hills that might have influenced some of the decisions that you made with the red course even though it was a you know a different piece of land yeah and i, I won't in any way speak for tom but you know again talking about architecture and the two sides of it building versus finding um you know the red course at dismal is as found a golf course as Tom has ever built, you know, along with St. Andrews beach, most likely, mm-hmm. um, yeah, 99% of the golf course at dismal river that we built is Tom's routing. You know, that it was the simplest project I've ever seen to the point where I would say probably 12 of the greens took less than 20 minutes on a bulldozer to shape. Um, and the others didn't take a whole lot more, but most of the greens were very much just laying there. You know, and the, the changes we made to greens like two or four um, were literally not four inches off that little bump and track it in, you're good. And, you know, that was a 10 or 20 minute job 
with a bulldozer and then run around with the sand pro when it was done and ready for grassing. Um, there was a little bit of fairway work on a couple holes, but so much of that golf course is just laying there and then adding a few bunkers to, to liven it up a little. Um, it, which is the sand hills, you know, the course that Bill and Ben built out there was very much the same thing. The, the white course at Dismal obviously is something different, which isn't to say that they moved a ton of earth. Uh, I don't think they did, but obviously the, greens as they originally built them um, were a little too severe for that environment it's a windy place and you know if the if the wind picks up and you build severe slopes out there the ball's not going to stay where it uh, where you hit it so i think a lot of the greens were softened early on um, for the sake of playability but it's a different you know it's a different style of golf certainly and and you know unfortunately the the club struggled financially early on and the turf was never quite what they'd hoped it would be i think and you know that's unfortunate because you know if you have fast firm turf out there i think the the white course would play much differently than it does now um but i get to play it a fair bit when we were working out there and it you know it's an acquired taste there is some wild stuff out there but i think it's fun too i think it is fun and and anytime you're playing golf on land like that there's a lot of fun to be had and there are places where you're aiming away from the hole and letting contours feed you in and uh, putting away from the hole mm. and to me that's fun it and there's fun. a lot of that out on the white course um you know it, it can be severe you know there, there are probably more hazards on that course than than we would build on ours but um and again you know their piece of land is a bit more severe than the piece of land we worked on too so that lends itself to more dramatic and and uh, more challenging golf but uh, but I think it's evolved into something that's fun to play and, and certainly different than anything else that's in the sandhills, and that's a good thing. Yeah, and it, it, the red course especially seems, I don't know, I guess it kind of flies under the radar of most of your, most of your firm's work, at least from the things that I, I see and, and read. And obviously that's the location has a lot to do with it. It's a private course out in the middle of nowhere. But do, do you feel like enough people have, have seen it and respected it? It just seems to not kind of generate the level of conversation that, a lot of your work does. You might be right. Yeah. I, I think it's a really good golf course and I'm really happy with the way it turned out. Um, it's been a little while since I've been back. My impression from their Instagram feed is that, that there's a lot more hunting and uh, killing things than playing golf out oh. there these <laughs> days, but um, which is not my thing, but I, I really do want to get yeah, back and see good. the golf course again. It's, it's been a little while, you know, we had our, we have an annual tournament called the Renaissance cup. Um, that we host on one of our golf courses every year and we went back to dismal shortly after it opened um, and it was playing beautifully I and mean, it's the superintendent had it dialed in it was bouncy and fast and it's so much fun to play and I, I do think it's a little overlooked for whatever reason and i'm sure location has something to do with that and um you know i think rock creek and montana has suffered the same fate mm-hmm. a little bit that yeah uh, though I, it just popped up in the new rankings, which is encouraging. Um, but I think that's a fantastic golf course too. But I think, you know, the, we've been really fortunate to work on the ocean a lot. And, you know, when you build things like Cape Kidnappers or Terry Eady or Barn Bugle, you know, it's, it's easy for those places to get attention because they take a beautiful picture. Um, which isn't to say that the other two golf courses I just mentioned, uh, Rock Creek or Dismal don't, mm-hmm. but uh, it's hard to compete with an ocean. So I think, you know, I think getting attention when you're in Nebraska or Montana is a little more difficult than when you're on an ocean. But, but I think the golf at both of those places is just every bit as good as uh, some of our coastal sites. 
you mentioned turf and and a lot of the sites that you built as you just said are you know linksy ocean side sandy so you want the ball to bounce and run and roll but uh when you were younger you served on time on grounds crews i say serve time that isn't quite <laughs> right the right, right maybe maybe that is what you, what it felt like but you no, know but you were at places like augusta national and marion and and uh pine valley for for spells and riviera and some of these clubs that you were exposed to when you were younger uh take turf and grass expression of it to the highest level uh what, what i want to ask is you know do you have, have any I don't want to say trouble, but you know, a lot of what you want to see in your golf and your golf courses is something that's less pristine than, than that. And do you have any problem reconciling those two things? Cause I always think like there's, there's gotta be a place for that. If, if you're the best grower of grass in the country, you ought to be able, there ought to be places where certain people can go and make the greenest, finest Augusta national level grass if they have the resources, because that's a skill and a talent. And other people are just as talented making, you know, working with fescues and, and browner grasses. But how did that, how did that, those experiences, like being on some of those golf courses where green is great, uh, influence or, or in, inform the way you look at golf courses now? It was a great experience. I had so much but i spent like four or five years doing that working for green keepers at, at the places you mentioned others and i worked for some great guys one of the things i learned during that time is that there are which is a sentiment that rusty mercer who's the superintendent at stream song um, when i was down there he made this point there are two types of superintendents there are grass growers and there are guys that present a playing surface mm-hmm. um, and those are two very different things and I worked for both kinds of guys back then, and uh, I definitely have my preference. But I do struggle with the way things have evolved, and it's it's interesting to see how you know the places I worked twenty years ago, the the cycles they've gone through over the past twenty years, and how they're maintained and presented. I worked at Shinnecock in nineteen ninety eight, and you know I worked for Superintendent Pete Smith, who was. Shinnecock and most of the crew was as well. And at that time, the club didn't devote a huge amount of resources to the maintenance of the golf course. And my impression was it didn't need it. You know, the golf course really kind of took care of itself. It's beautiful soil. It's a great climate and it played beautifully every day. And there were little cherry trees out in the rough here and there. And there were the perfect amount of imperfections there. And, you know, to go back there now, you know, John Jennings is a great superintendent and it also presents a great surface, but the place is a lot cleaner. You know, the little cherry trees are not in the rough anymore. Everything's very pure. It's just got a different feel to it, you know, and it, it feels less connected to the land. And I think that's happening more and more as maintenance standards increase. Um, it bums me out, you know, when I worked at Marion in 1998, it was as well-maintained as any golf course I'd seen. And it played really well. You know, Paul Latchaw was the superintendent who's uh, who's back again now, has been there for the past couple of years and went through the renovation. Um, but it played beautifully. Nobody in 1998 was saying, boy, if only we could do this, then this golf course would play better. And, you know, post-renovation now, they've, they've implemented all the bells and whistles you possibly could to, to improve his ability to present a great surface day after day every day of the year 24 hours a day um and i really can't imagine the golf course is playing 
much better than it was 20 years ago, you know, and, and at what expense. And, you know, at the same time, it had so much character back then. It was beautifully connected to the site in a way that is, is hard to maintain when you're controlling the environment so much, you know, I think maybe it goes back to winemaking, you know, the, the French wines, because there's, their fewer inputs are more connected to their site. Whereas the, the New Zealand wines, where there's a lot more control over what you're doing, you know, have mm-hmm. less of that terroir. You know what I mean? Um, well, you mentioned it. So it it is frustrating for me to see. You mentioned something like like there was almost like a, a certain level of imperfection in it, which which made it more enjoyable or authentic. You know, there, there's a Japanese word for that, wabi sabi, like perfectly Im- imperfect in a way. And and then they connected to wine. There's a, a movement in wine over the last ten years called natural wines, and there again, there's almost no inputs. It's as close to just growing a grape and crushing it and fermenting it as, as possible. And what you get out of those is a different style of wine. It's a little leaner and there's maybe a little more variance, definitely vintage to vintage, maybe even, you know, bottle to bottle, vineyard to vineyard. But that, that's what people respond to is, is the, the, the absence of perfection, the absence of input, the absence of manipulation. And yeah, it's so there, there's a connection there to, to over, overdoing a, a golf course but it seems like there's so many things that ha- have to go right in a club setting in a golf club setting for instance to get everybody on board with dialing in the maintenance or as you say that like the playing surface getting that to match the architecture versus just having like super lush perfect green grass i mean that's mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that have to get on board with with the former expression mm-hmm. yeah i think you know, I give the USGA some credit for pushing the the down with Brown thing that they were they were going after for a little while there. I don't know if that continues, but didn't seem to do know. much. No, and I I think that's probably the wrong message. You know, things don't have to be brown to play well. Um, they can be green. They can look like Augusta and play beautifully, but also take less inputs to get there you know it's less about a color as opposed to how it plays and you know i think water and and fertility um are the two big things that uh, should be focused on and i think brown can be a byproduct of that and getting people comfortable with brown is is a great and ambitious goal but i think it might be you know might have been going too far as opposed to just focusing on the things that you know Focusing on water usage, focusing on chemical inputs, um, regardless of color. You know, color is a byproduct of those things. But if you're using your resources and your inputs responsibly, um, you're going to create a, a better playing surface, regardless of what color that playing surface turns out to be. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, I, oh, I'm sorry. Go I ahead. Think, yeah, I, I think that ties into architecture and construction as well. I mean, generally, the if you've got something really good, the less you mess with it, the better it's going to be. Um, yeah. And I think I think superintendents are evolving towards that. I think that business has changed a lot just in the last twenty years since I was exposed to it. Um, and I think that I think it's changing a lot, and it's heading in a really good direction. Yeah, I guess it comes down to. I mean, I would I would think that there, at least on a well designed golf course, there is a, a a certain turf playing characteristic that suits whatever has been designed. 
and, and it's just it's finding that and, and in most cases especially with with the golf courses that you built it, it's going to need to be a little drier or a little more firm uh but but it's about finding that ideal playing char- characteristic to match the architecture it is i i think that's part of the problem and especially in a lot of clubs uh, especially urban clubs that have a lot of neighbors mm-hmm. um you know, the goal isn't often what's best for our golf course. You know, what what are our ideal playing conditions for what we have, as opposed to what are those guys down the street doing? Boy, those greens are a little faster than ours. What you know, what's wrong here? It's like, well, yeah, your greens are a lot steeper and more interesting than theirs. So be happy with what you've got and stop chasing fourteen on the stint meter. Right. Um, that's a hard message for clubs to get, uh, just to to find the ideal conditions for their place. You know, it's a, to be to appreciate and embrace that they have something unique and show it off as well as you can, as opposed to competing with what somebody else down the street might be doing mm-hmm. or somebody on TV might be doing. You know, um, that's a, that's a tougher sell, and that's that's probably harder for a lot of members to embrace. And I think a lot of it comes down to ego. You know, it's nobody wants to have the slowest greens in the neighborhood, even if that makes for better golf. Yeah, I I don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really operate in that high club level scene, so I'm glad I don't. I'm not part of that. I don't have to, you know, interact with people who think that way. But I, that's a that's a tough one. I'm not sure how you come back, how you come off that that hill. Yeah, I think a lot of places have already, you know, they're definitely flirting with the point of no return if they haven't passed it. Um, you know, to expect a club to slow down their greens at this point is a lot to ask. But mm-hmm. but. Uh, well, to get them thinking as, as, about, to, you know, to get them thinking about, okay, your greens, most of your greens work right now. You know, you've got two of them that are too severe, but you know, if you keep chasing speed, you're going to have to keep rebuilding greens every year for eternity until you decide that we can't do this anymore because superintendents are just getting better and better at what they do. Turf grass is getting better. You know, they have the tools to keep increasing speed forever. Um, that's not really in anybody's best interest. And, and at some point clubs just have to be content with what they have and, and, you know, spend less maintaining their golf courses and spend less blowing them up and, and softening them to accommodate ever increasing speeds. I, I think golf parallels our socioeconomic situation in a lot of ways in that there are, you know, in there's the one percenters and there are, and in golf, there are in every kind of major urban center, there are, a handful of clubs that basically have as much money at their disposal as they want. And then after that, it, it's pointed diminishing returns and you get a lot of uh, people that are, you know, playing blue collar golf who don't have to worry about this. But if you're, if you are a member of those 1% clubs and, and you are flush with money, I don't see how, I mean, you're thinking like, you know, I pay these, I paid this initiation fee. I pay these green fees. My law partner is a member of the next club at, to your point, they're just going to, they're going to keep going. I mean, they're just going to keep, keep pushing and pushing and pushing. They, they might even look at it as a financial investment or they, they want to get a higher return on their money with greener grass and faster greens. So uh, yeah, to your point that that's, what's kind of scary because everybody else who doesn't have access to those clubs and doesn't often get inside those gates still looks up to those clubs and thinks that that's sort of a, a private club ideal. That's pretty dangerous. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the, the average guy that's, you know, playing at the local muni understands the financial situation and the limitations and therefore caps their expectations of, of what the presentation can be. Um, 
but yeah, once you're once you're putting down the kind of money that a lot of private clubs require, um, yeah, it's hard not to compare yourself and expect more and more expect and more. Expect returns, yeah. Yeah. Well, as as we start to kind of kind of wind this down, Brian. I wonder if you could kind of take me behind the scenes a little bit in, in Renaissance. One of the things I'm always curious about it. It seems like uh, when Tom gets a job, most of you rotate through those jobs. Um, you and you and Eric and, and Brian. And how does that exactly work, though? D- does does Tom do you think? Do you think that Tom does he see each of you to have sort of like a different skill set or a different ideology that he tries to, to match up. If you're going to be the lead designer on one of these projects, how does it, how does that part of the, your business work of your firm? I'm not sure. Honestly, uh, Tom has professed to not, not assign work based on our differences necessarily. Um, so I can't say whether he does or he doesn't. A lot of it comes down to timing. You know, this project is likely to start next April, and you're likely to be available then. So why don't you travel with me to see it? And we'll go into the assumption that uh, you'll probably be running that one, whereas Eric will be busy over there until that's done and go on to the next. So timing is usually a big part of it. Um, and maybe Tom has some preferences. I don't know. Uh, but he's never expressed that to me. But typically, you know, we're we're kind of taking turns depending on availability, and there you know there are always projects to which we're assigned to run theoretically that don't happen. Um, so Eric could end up running three in a row, whereas Brian hasn't run for a couple of years, sort of thing. So those things happen occasionally too. But I think over over the course of time, it always balances out, and and we're not fighting to run projects in any way. I mean, I think we're all content to either run projects or shape on them, and uh, we enjoy every aspect of the work. So. Um, it's, I think we've got a really unique and wonderful culture within our little company. Um, we all get along great. We all respect each other, really enjoy working together. And I've never once sensed with Brian or Eric or Don, um, a competitiveness over who's getting what work or that sort of thing. It just, it just doesn't exist. We're all just happy to be doing the work and happy to be working with Tom and, and really enjoy what we're doing and understand that we're fortunate to have a bunch of great opportunities that we all get to share in. The impression that I get, and, and after seeing the, a lot of your work, is that the four or five of you operate sort of as, as one giant organism with the same brain, you know, <laughs> approaching things, you know, the same way with the same mindset, especially after all these years you've worked together. But what are, I mean, there must be some differences. Are there, are there different characteristics or points of views that each of you bring to it that are unique? I'm sure there are. Are you aware uh, of them? If, if it so, would be, do you ever go like go like Eric? Eric always likes to you know to do this certain thing, or Slonic likes to you know. Oh, there's Brian's been here. You know, anything like that? Yeah, Eric always likes to work really fast and really clean and really well. That's that's very irritating. That's annoying. Um, yeah, which is yeah, which is to say that Brian doesn't. <laughs> uh, the, those guys are so talented. It's it's fun to watch. I mean, yeah, I got to work beside Eric really early on at Stonewall, which is my first project with Tom. Uh, the second golf course there and in, in outside of Philadelphia. And, you know, when I started there, I, I persuaded Tom that I could actually shape and, and Don Plasic and Bruce were on site early on and happy to look the other way while I made a fool of myself. Mm-hmm. But we had this old bulldozer, old bulldozer that Paul Maurer, the GM there scrounged up from somewhere. Um, I think it had a fixed blade open cab 
and I was struggling with this thing. You know, I, I roughed in a handful of greens and did some other work with it, but it was a mess, you know, and Eric showed up. I think he'd been working down at Texas tech and jumped in this thing and banged out the second green in no time. Like it was a brand new machine and looked beautifully clean. And I'm just scratching my head. Like what, what is this guy? Like, where does he come from? Who, who can do that? Right. <laughs> um, so I was lucky to work with him early on and learn from him and you know, I'm still trying to, still trying to catch up. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, we, we all share a similar approach to what we do, I think, which is, you know, based on Tom's philosophies and thoughts about architecture, but we also try you know, I think we make a concerted effort to do something different on every job and never repeat what we've done before stylistically. Um, you know, we probably get pigeonholed as, as building the flashy bunkers everywhere, but so much of our work is different than that. And we, yeah, we try really hard to do something different. And the, the earliest days on any project are a lot of fun. We're kind of sorting out what that style is going to be. We don't, often approach a project with a set style in mind. We just start building stuff and see what happens and then riff off each other and it becomes a theme. But that's something we we do try to do is not do on this course what we just did in the last two or three. Um, and I think we all share in that and, and just kind of work off of what each other are doing and see what we can come up with. Right. Can you give think of an example because I, I agree with what you say. I think the the layman, you know, just looks at a, a couple pictures of a golf course in the top 100 list or whatever and, and, you know, sees some similarities. But can you give me an example of what maybe players don't notice from one project to the next that you were consciously trying to kind of break mold and, and push out in a new direction? Obviously, the loop is an extreme example, but I'm sure there are other examples of where you were doing something different in construction or, or with your bunker arrangement or, or green contouring that maybe somebody wouldn't notice that it's a real departure from the previous courses. Yeah, we talked about Dismal River earlier, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, our, our other course in the Sand Hills is Ballyneal, which is a more kind of wild, rambunctious piece of ground. And the greens there are as wild and crazy as anything we've ever built. Um, you know, there's a lot of big, bold contour in those greens, but a lot of them are kind of set in bowls. So, you know, if you've got to go over this big contour to get to the whole location from where you are, you can also play 10 yards to the left up a bank and let it feed back in. So there are a lot of backstops and things that you can use to get your ball close, even if you can't go straight at it because there's a, a big contour in your way. So I think, you know, the greens are really severe there, but they work well because they're often contained in bowls with, with surrounding contours yeah. that are helpful. You know, Dismal is the opposite. You know, those greens are really quiet. Um, you know, they've got a little bit of tilt, but most of them don't have a ton of contour in them the same way Balladeals do. Um, so, you know, that's within a couple hours of each other, a pretty, pretty good example of the diversity in those sets of greens. Again, probably in places that a lot of people don't get to or aren't exposed to. Yeah. You know, Old McDonald and Pacific Dunes, too two golf courses within a couple hundred yards of each other. Um, that's another set of greens that's really different from one another. The bunkering is very different, both in the kind of the placement and the style um, and the amount of short grass around both golf courses, the width of Old Mac versus the relatively narrow, intimate uh, scale of Pacific Dunes. Yeah, I th you know, Common Ground is another one that stylistically you know, just aesthetically is very different common ground and the 
the public course we built in Denver. Yeah. Um, you know, stylistically is very different than much of what we've done. Part of it is, um, you know, it's difficult because when you're getting a site like, you know, Barnboogle, you know, you have to, you have to honor the land, you know, there's, so there, the, there's not a, a desire, there shouldn't be a desire or, or an edict to do anything other than, you know, build, just follow the, you know, the land and, and get the best golf holes out of it. So, um, when you get great properties, there's going to be a, a bit of homogenation across designs. There is. And part of that, you know, when you go back to places like Barnboogle or Bally Neal, where it's windy and sandy and, you know, we're finding inspiration in some of the blowouts or some of the natural features that are on those sites. But to go back, you know, 10 or you know, shit, even three years later and see how nature has taken over and how things evolve. Um, you know, even if we didn't introduce that style, in many cases, nature was going to introduce it for us. Mm-hmm. You know, things just evolve in a certain direction on, on those sites, particularly in windy places and sandy soils where, you know, they evolve towards a certain rugged natural look, which is great. Um, you know, that's, that's not something we aim to control in any way. It's, it's fun to see what happens to our golf courses after we leave them in the hands of the superintendent for a while and let nature do their thing. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool to go back. Uh, a similar question to uh, a few minutes ago. You often bring in outside independent shapers to to help you. I, I want to give a shout out to Blake Conant, who I know you've been working with a lot oh, lately. Don't feed his ego. I, I, <laughs> I'm setting him up for something <laughs> down the line. Um, <laughs> and you've worked with Kai Golby and Clyde Johnson, other great talented shapers. Is there a when you're bringing on somebody else to to help you out, is are you selecting them for specific uh, qualities that they bring? Is it a personality or is it just a scheduling thing? How do, how do you view like the different shapers and do they have bring different suites of skills to the job? It's some of both. You know, a guy like Blake, um, he was an intern at Dismal River with, you mentioned Clyde was an intern there mm-hmm. along with probably five or six other guys that are still in the golf business, I think. You know, I would, I think we had one bulldozer and one excavator, which I would keep one or the other busy most days. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the machines would be sitting and they were available for any of the guys to use and get some time on and, and learn to run. And, you know, Blake kind of always had the standing offer. If nobody else wants it, I'll get in the machine. I'll play around for an hour before dinner or, you know, late. And they worked long days. It was a, it was a tough project, but he was always really excited to jump on a machine he took to it really quickly and he's become a really talented shaper really fast really creative really clean but personality is part of it too you know we spend a lot of time on site and a lot of time you know living together on the road and having dinner with each other every night you know whoever we're working with and finding somebody you get along with both while you're working and after work and also somebody that you can trust when you leave the site uh, to not do or say anything stupid and, and keep things moving in the right way and actually add uh, add a bunch of cool stuff where you're gone. That's all really important too. Blake's great at that. You know, you mentioned Angela, Clyde. Um, we've had a lot of guys like that that uh, we've been fortunate to work with, and and all of those little pieces tie into to uh, the people we use. That they're not only are they talented shapers, there are a lot of those out there, uh, but uh, we also have to click personally and uh and they have to contribute beyond just being really good in a machine well let's close this out with a couple of quick questions 
if someone wants to learn about Walter Travis, you know, kind of wants to understand what he was all about, what are two or three golf courses that they have to go, would have to go see? Hollywood would certainly be on the list. Um, you know, the Country Club of Scranton is another one with a brilliant set of greens. You know, they've got 15 original greens left. Three of them were flattened in the 50s or 60s by the green chairman, I think. But the remaining greens there are absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's a good routing. There are a bunch of cool holes, a few of which are kind of typical Travis, where he'd you know, route a hole going downhill and put the green on the downslope running away from you. You know, the backside of it is six or eight feet in the air. Um, the great greens like that. You know, the, the bunkering there no longer reflects his work, so I'm slightly hesitant to, to include that one, but the greens alone are just brilliant. Um, Country Club of Troy near Albany is a great old Travis course. It's really well preserved. Uh, Bruce Hepner has been working there for years and has done a great job of getting that place where it needs to be. And they've got a really good superintendent who buys into that as well. Cape Arundel is another one that's, mm-hmm. again, Bruce has worked there for years and same thing. It's beautifully preserved, a great set of greens. Um, that's a really good one. Those would be the best preserved or restored example of, of his work. Um, you know, unfortunately a lot of clubs have, some of his greens left, but not all of them. You know, I work with North Jersey Country Club. They've got, I think, seven or eight original greens that are out of this world. Just amazing. Um, and we're going to work on putting back a bunch of the stuff that's been changed or lost over the years. But it's, that's early on and a work in progress. But, yeah, I think Troy, Cape Arundel, uh, Hollywood, those are all great examples of his work. And pretty, pretty diverse, too, very different than one another. So when you're working on a Travis Green and, and you've described them, you know, the best examples as, as you know, being outlandish at, at one extreme, you know, or very highly contoured or really interesting. Do you have to, when you're working on a green, do you have to scale that, the, you keep the idea, but scale it down? Or, or can you work with the superintendent in the club and say, I'm, we're going to keep this, this exaggeration here, but we're going to, you know, work with the green speeds as well? I think that's one of the things I really admire about his greens. Um, some of them are loaded with contour, but oftentimes it's kind of like a miniature belly meal where you know, he creates these little shelves or hole locations that, you know, they've got a big contour between, you, know, you could have a big contour between you and the hole, but there's some containment to these little shelves and little hole locations he created so that, you know, there are some greens of his that are fairly steep, but there aren't a bunch of them that are just a 5% slope from back to front that they're just too steep at high speeds. You know, they contain contour in a way that, you know, to the, even to the point where sometimes his whole locations don't drain, like they're just literally little bowls, but they can be really fast and still work really well. And I think that's just kind of the nature of a lot of what he built is that balls don't often get away from you. If you're above the hole, you don't have a, horribly steep slope running away to me his best greens are more about contour than than steepness so that's one of the things i really like about his greens is that they're still really wild and they're not really big but they work really well um even 100 years later yeah that's a nice trick it's good to be able to pull that off it is yeah, yeah. and a lot of architects you wouldn't say the same thing you know, you know tilling has built some beautiful greens but a lot of them are are just steep back to front um and yeah it's a struggle to make those work but i haven't run into many 
many greens on Travis's courses that I work with that uh, I felt the need to soften. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just not a not a thing that uh, not a thing that's come up. You grew up in Wisconsin. What are some of the best courses or your favorite courses in Wisconsin, perhaps that people aren't that familiar with? Man, it's become a really good golf state. It's incredible. Uh, yeah, and there's so it's, there's courses being discovered left and right, older courses, and there's so much there. Yeah, I saw um, Pine Hills and Sheboygan. Yeah, I don't know if it was, I think it was earlier this year, or late last year. That's a fantastic golf course. Really, really looks great. Fast, looks fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's not far from Black Wolf Run, but you know, there's not much overlap in the the people playing both places. I don't think, but it's brilliant. It's a really good piece of ground. Um, it was designed by a guy named Harry Smead. Yeah. Who, I, ju- I, I just had uh, Drew Rogers on, and he's going to start working there. Oh, cool! I hope he doesn't do much. <laughs> they don't need much. Yeah, you know, that's what he said. It's, it's just fine tuning, you know, mowing lines and trees, and maybe a little bunker work. Yeah, their superintendent's done a great job of getting the greens generally mowed out to where they need to be, and the ferry lines are pretty good. Um, yeah, it's mostly just trees there, but it's a great piece of ground and a really cool set of greens. Very. I think I don't know much about Harry Smead, but uh, I think he worked for Langerbrunner. Yes, at some I don't point. think anybody does. Associate. Yeah, but uh, you know his work very much resembles theirs, um, both kind of in the scale of the features and the the contouring of the greens and around the greens. Uh, but brilliant stuff on a really cool piece of ground. It's great routing, a beautiful piece of land, and a great set of greens. Uh, yeah, there's there's a bunch of classic stuff like that. Uh, you know, Blue Mountain and and uh, Milwaukee Country Club obviously gets some attention. But, right. um, yeah, there's a bunch of old stuff scattered around, and obviously a ton of new stuff that um, is getting a lot of attention. But Lithonia is still my favorite, I think. You know, when I grew up about 45 minutes from Lithonia, and we'd head over there every once in a while. And, you know, I, I grew up in Oshkosh, which is not a hotbed for golf. <laughs> um, and grew up playing muni golf and public courses around there. There right. was just a little mom and pop laid out by a farmer years ago. Um, so going to Lithonia at a young age was like, you know, you can't not notice the architecture there. It's, it, it is screaming at you uh, from the moment you start. So I think that's probably the first place I really noticed, hey, somebody actually built this. Um, and I love going back there. And it's, it's just gotten better and better and better. Ron Forrest and Jim Nagel have worked there for years. And they've, they've made huge improvements from when I used to play it as a kid. Um, and it's, that's one of my favorite places in golf. I love getting back there. When you were, when you were at that age, how much did you know about architecture? Which age was that when I was growing up? Yeah. Like when you were growing up, when did the, when did the bulb go off and say like, you know, there's a, this is a product of somebody's imagination. Somebody actually put effort into designing this course or that course. Yeah. It would have been something I'd noticed at Lasonia, probably in my teens, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that, you know, I didn't identify that as a, a passion of mine necessarily, probably until college. Yeah, it was, you know, it was really my senior year in college when I'd already <laughs> studied to go down a different path that I decided this was something I wanted to pursue. Um, you know, I, I had the luxury back then of graduating with very little debt, you know, going to state, you know, in-state tuition at Wisconsin was, I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison and it was really affordable. So when I graduated, I didn't have a ton of debt. So, you know, I didn't feel compelled to use my degrees to, to get a high paying job right out of school to pay off those loans. And my parents were great about it. And they, they encouraged me to, to take a stab at this and, and see what would happen. Uh, so yeah, I, I had that luxury. Um, 
and I'm glad I did. Yeah. It worked out pretty it well. It seems to work out pretty well. <laughs> um, you know, the first, my first, you know, before I graduated, I started working at Black Wolf Run, um, just mowing greens and raking bunkers, and they were building whistling straights at the time. So a couple afternoons a week, I would get to go over there and just watch what was going on and do menial tasks, but watching the scrapers flying around and dump trucks coming in and the scale of that project was impressive and exciting. And it's like, Oh, this is how you build golf courses. This is cool. Um, not exactly. <laughs> no, no, not exactly. Um, so as, you know, as that season was winding down, fall was setting in, I sent out a couple of resumes to other superintendents to try and find somewhere else to work once Black Wolf Run closed. And uh, Corey Crandall was the superintendent of the Sand Hills at that point. He was the first one to get back to me. And that was 1997. So the place was pretty new at the time. Um, but I'd read a little bit about it, and that seemed like a cool thing. So my parents drove me out, and uh, I'll never forget driving around the golf course with Corey for the first time. And you know, it just blew me away to see something so different than anything I'd ever seen before. You know, that was the, the second private golf course I'd ever seen in my life. Oshkosh Country Club being the first, which I'm sure you've heard of. Um, but that made a huge impact on me. You know, Whistling Straits was impressive, but to, to spend time at the Sand Hills and to learn about that process and how the golf course was built, to see how beautifully it tied into its landscape, was it really made an impact on me. Um, and I was pretty hooked at that point that this is definitely what I wanted to do. Got to, little, you know, got to spend a little time with Bill and his guys while they were out there, and uh, that was a cool experience. Yeah, that's a hell of a first exposure going from Whistling Straits to Sand Hills. I mean, talk about covering your bases. Absolutely. It was. It was. And then from there, I went to a Fazio course in Scottsdale and then to Riviera and then out back out east. But I got to see a bunch of different stuff early on. And, and you know, Tom and Bill were the guys that I pestered a bit early on uh, when I was trying to get into this and you know they, early on they both encouraged me just to see golf courses and to try to suss out what I really liked about the ones I liked and what I didn't like about the ones that I didn't like um, and I had the opportunity to be exposed to a bunch of stuff at that stage that you know that helped me kind of understand and refine my own tastes which was uh, it was a lot of fun I got to play a lot of golf in the process do you ever feel do you feel like your your tastes settle or do they do they change they're constantly changing they're constantly changing in, in, in important and, ways or or minor ways i don't i'm everything's important uh, in in major like i find it hard to believe that you would you know do what you do and then all of a sudden like have an epiphany and say you know i'm i'm really attracted to you know tom fazio's you know overall body of work not that there's anything wrong with tom i just use that as an example of somebody who you know, it's yeah. heavily in construction. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I guess my, my shifts in taste are more minor than that. Yeah. They're not big philosophical approaches to construction and design. Um, it's more just, you know, as I travel around, I love to travel and see new places. Um, and I, you know, I get inspired by the things that I'm seeing. So it's, you know, it's going to a place like myopia and saying, boy, I want to do that someday. Or, um, you know, that sort of thing, just picking up the theme of a golf course you've seen somewhere and, and wanting to run with that on our own work. Yeah, it's more on that scale as opposed to really admiring moving 2,000 yards of dirt to create something out of nothing. Right. Um, so there's something to be said for that, too. And, you know, that opportunity, which Tom 
Tom had at Texas Tech years ago um, on the heels of Pacific Dunes to do something completely different and to approach that sort of project differently than other people had in the past is, you know, that, that's got a certain appeal too. And, and not every site is Dismal River. Um, there's definitely some in between in every project. So moving, you know, the ability to move large amounts of earth um, is valuable on most of the projects we do. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, uh, yeah, taking the, the route that Tom Fazio took doesn't necessarily appeal to me. Yeah. Like to, to can finish this up with another wine equivalency <laughs> it's, it's, I think the journey most people go on in wine is they start off with big flavorful reds like Bordeaux or California cabs. And then after a while, you know, and those might be the, the modern golf courses, the Pete Dye or Tom Fazio golf courses, something that would make, you know, make a big impression. And then as their they, their tastes are refined and they, they're more exposed and they travel a little bit and they see more things, they kind of might gravitate toward wines like Burgundies and Pinot Noirs or, uh, you know, cold weather Syrahs that have a little more, more expression of, of earth and terroir and a little more nuance and they're not flashy, you know, over the top ripe fruit bombs. So that I think that's the journey people go on with golf courses a lot of times too, is they learn a little bit more and then they can start to seek out different architects and off the beaten path and historical architecture and it becomes a much more rich and varied experience at that point. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, it probably ebbs and flows back and forth. Yeah, that's right. And you don't have to you know, forsake one either. You know, there's a time yep. and a place for everything. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's tied to wanting to do something different every time we go out. Um, you know, there's only so many things you can do. And at some point you probably circle back towards something you've done in the past. But yeah, I, I think there is that, that ebb and flow and desire to try new things. Um, you know, I'm more of a beer snob than a, a wine snob. Oh, really? and, and anyone who knows me probably knows that I rarely order the same beer two times in a row. I just like trying something different. And I think golf is the same way that uh, you're always looking for something different, something you haven't seen before. Um, and trying to incorporate that into there's a lot of nice beers forward. coming out of Charleston now. There are a few, yeah. I've got a couple of buddies that opened a brewery here just about a year and a half, two years ago, and they're killing it, making really good stuff. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of good beer down this way. Good time, Everywhere. yeah. Good time That's to be in, into beer right now. Um, it is. What's it is. the What's the best modern course you've seen, or your favorite course that you did not have, you did not partake in constructing or designing? Oh, I forgot you were going to ask this. Um, It's hard not to go back to Bill and Ben's work. Um, I admire those guys so much and you know, their whole crew and everything they do is just fantastic. Um, Sand Hills is the easy choice. I'd love to come up with something different. Um, got to go with where your heart is. Sand Hills would be my favorite and what I think is the best. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to get away from that and I'm sure most of your guests have probably said that at this point, but, um, but there's a lot of neat stuff out there. You know, Gil's doing neat work. Um, I really like what Andy Staples did at Meadowbrook. Mm -hmm. Um, I look forward to him getting more opportunities because he's, I think he's capable and interested in doing different things than other people are doing. No, there's a, there's a lot of talented people out there right now that, uh, hopefully can introduce some new ideas, um, and things that, uh, we haven't seen before. Let's hope, let's hope, but as well as, uh, we'd like to see Renaissance continue their illustrious streak as well. It's a I hope so. tough yeah, market. We've got, some, we've got some exciting stuff coming up. Uh, Tom's very excited about 
the next few years. Uh, we all are. We've got some really exciting pieces of land to be working with and some great opportunities. So, Have you spent some time yeah. at St. Patrick's yet? I have. Um, not last year. It was two years ago. Uh, 2017, we went over and built two greens to get things rolling. Uh, but I didn't get a chance to get back this year. So, I'm sorry, it was 2018 I was there. Um, but I look forward to trying to get back this year. I think a lot of the work is done, as I understand it. All the green sites are grassed, built in grass. Um, so it's mostly fairway work and some bunkering and tees at this point. But I do look forward to getting back there. That's a, that's a beautiful place. What an amazing spot. Um, and spending time in Ireland is never a bad thing. No, it's but, never a bad thing. <laughs> don't yeah, even need golf so- to do it. No, no. Although you should, if you're right. going over there, you should definitely bring your clubs. A little bit of both. I will. I will. Brian, thanks for taking some time to talk to me today. I know this is your downtime, and I appreciate the opportunity to catch up with you. That was fun. Thank you. It was fun. Uh, Enjoy listening to what you're doing. I appreciate you doing it, and uh, it's been my pleasure to be on. Okay, Brian Schneider, ladies and gentlemen. I thought that was a great talk. I enjoyed that. It was a real treat for me. I thought this discussion got stronger the farther we went. The second hour was not to miss, in my opinion. Um, I'm really glad that we got to talk about Dismal River Red. It's a golf course that it shows up. Um, I'm not sure where it ranks on the 100 greatest list. I'm pretty sure Golf Week has it in the top 100 modern. Uh, I'm not sure where it shows up on the other ranking lists, but it just one of those golf courses, especially being designed by Tom Doak and, and Renaissance, that it doesn't get the same kind of attention or accolades, obviously, as Old McDonald or Bandon or Bally Neal or Stream Song. But Just after talking to Brian about it and the way he described the golf course, I knew a little bit about it, and I've been to Dismal River and played the White Course, and it's a wonderful property, and and it's a really interesting, gorgeous uh, piece of earth, really very similar to Sand Hills. But I hadn't seen the red, and after Brian described it the way he did, I I think that just jumped right to the top of the list of modern courses that I want to see and I want to play next. Because that golf course, the way he described it as being perhaps the most natural course they've ever built that required the least amount of work, that sounds tantalizing. I um, think there might be something there that, that a lot of people are missing. The other thing I wanted to talk about real quick uh, before I let you go, I know we've been doing this for a long time. Thanks for hanging in there. Um, I really enjoyed the part where he talked about Walter Travis and at Hollywood. We were talking about the bunkering and, and some of the shapes there and, and some of the things that are kind of pushed up into the sky and bunkers that are dug into top of mounds. It's really creative. And he, he said he thinks Travis was, was just out there having fun. And it does make sense. A lot of the things, you know, just from an aerial that I haven't been there, but uh, photographs I've seen and, and, and pictures from the sky, it just, it does look like Travis was having a lot of fun. I think there's a, a place for that. There's a, there's a place for ornamentation in golf architecture. And some of the features that Travis created at Hollywood, I mean, it's, it's like uh, bunker strings that are like necklaces. It's like he's, he's applying jewelry to a painting or even to, to a, a, a lover just making something that's beautiful look even better. It's gilding it, yes, but I think that works at times. If for no other reason, it's, it shows that the architect has intention and a point of view and is, is pushing to be creative. And, and I think uh, there's humor in that. And not everything has to have an exact purpose. I don't think we want to support architecture where we demand that that everything has a function and a, and a purpose. Uh, there's a, a place for mirth there's a, a place for tongue-in-cheek there's a place for ornamentation 
there's a place for bedazzling for jewelry for 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 just and like Brian said, having fun with it. I, I think having a point of view like that is, is much preferable to creating golf courses that are, are purely functional. And some people will take a, a look at a golf course where things don't analytically match up to the, the tenets of strategy and, and everything is exactly proportioned and a shot here creates a, a balanced reward situation. That's fine. That, that's There's plenty of golf courses that, that do set up like that, but it, it's also fun to go play golf courses that kind of break down expectations and take the golfer on a, on another journey. So um, I, I'm appreciative of that and I, I think Brian is too and, and Hollywood looks like a great place. So let's take a moment to thank Brian Schneider. We look forward to seeing more of his work out there with Tom Doak and Renaissance Design. That was a great conversation. Wrap this up with a couple quick notes and a reminder for you to hit those follow buttons on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Feed the Ball. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio or Google Play or wherever you get your podcast, do that. That helps me out. Look at TalkingGolf.com for the latest and greatest in golf podcasts, including Talking Golf History with Connor Lewis, the Good Good Podcast, which will fire up new episodes uh, coming in January. On the Tee with Kelly P is a new podcast. Look for new episodes from her tour mentality with Nick Ahern. Many good stuff there, but TalkingGolf.com, go check it out. Thanks to all of you for your support and for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. Everyone have a happy new year. Until we get a chance to do this again, adios. Adios.